This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. You don't normally go from college to pros overnight. Problem is, nobody told Rich Keith. He showed up to Dodger Stadium, pitched himself to Fred Clare, and the rest was history. But along the way, he picked up some fantastic baseball stories. And, and there was a ball player that said to me one time, uh, I thanked him, and I said, I really appreciate you helping me on this, whatever it was that I was needing to photograph with him. And he says, Rich, he says, you don't have to thank me. He says, I'm glad to do it. He says, remember this, I am just a ball player. I'm fortunate to have the talent to do it. I'm no better than anybody else. He says, you, me, we're all in the same boat, buddy. And I was like, keep it simple. And he did. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Hall of Fame basketball players, college professors, fashion designers, UC Irvine University photographer, Steve Zyles. I wasn't really interested in, in, in portraits and, 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 you know, being a commercial photographer. It just, that's not where the action was, you know? For me, it was like, I, I, I don't want to be in a studio all day, you know? I, I got to be out. <laughs> I got to be out, like, you know, looking at the world, you know? The rest of my conversation with Steve can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Rich Key. Maine Farmhouse Brands was started by Dan McCool, a healthcare professional. His goal was to make premium soap. Most people may not realize how important the right soap is for their health and the difference between soap and detergent. Soap is made from natural ingredients like animal and plant fats, whereas detergent is made from synthetic, often harsh chemicals, even fossil fuels like petroleum. Maine Farmhouse Brands makes their own soap with natural ingredients, free from harsh chemicals. So if you want to keep your skin healthy and clean, I would recommend using Maine Farmhouse Brand Soap instead of detergent. You can find their body wash, shaved soaps, laundry soap, and beard oils, and more at MaineFarmhouseBrands.com. I am so excited and happy and glad that this podcast is able to come about because I've got not just a photographer, a Brooks guy, a podcaster himself, an author of a new book, but I've got somebody that has done some amazing, amazing work over his career and still, I believe, has more to give. How are you doing this morning, Rich? Well, Matt, you made my day already, and it's early. And <laughs> it's one of the very nicest compliments for you to uh, reach out and ask me to be a guest. And I think I should be having the, the microphone in front of me because the work that you produced, uh, don't sell yourself short, my friend. It's very, very impressive, and I look forward to having a fun conversation with you. Well, I, I, I'm truly blessed to have you on because I have seen your work, but like a lot of early work, you know, it's even still today, you'll see someone's work, but you don't see someone's name. You don't see the credit line, and you can maybe pick up someone's style of their work, and if you see enough of it over a period of time, you might be able to pick up who it is. And I've seen your work for for years without a name on it. And now that I'm seeing it in the book, and I'm like, my God, I, I saw that, I saw that, I saw that. I mean, 
your your early work with the Dodgers is really the kind of stuff I wanted to emulate when I became a team photographer. I have to tell you something. Most of my work that's in the new book, which is called the Dodger Collection, I recently discovered it. And, and, and it sounds strange, but the process back then in those days was there was a certain um, look, a certain need to fill for Dodger publications. They had scorecards, they had yearbooks and so forth. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, you had um, a, a general interest or, or need to fill out some photos, say, for a scorecard. Those photos they were looking for were a collision at home plate or uh, a batter at, the, at home plate swinging through or a double play play, so forth. Th those type of things is what they needed. They were fairly generic and boring, to be honest with you. Sure. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very straightforward. It was a different time in the way that images were being used back then. And, and then at that period of time, the process was typically go in, develop your film, create a contact sheet, circulate those proof sheets amongst the, the different directors that had a need for the photographs. They would check off what they wanted. Those would be printed. And then the contact sheet and the negatives would be would be uh, punched and they would be put into a binder. And that binder grew and grew. And then there was additional binders and additional years and so forth. Oh, my God. Art never really had the time to go back in and dedicate the time to go through those proof sheets and so forth. So when it came time to do the book, that's exactly what I did. And I go, oh, my God. This is a shot that I haven't seen in 42 years. <laughs> Nobody else saw it. Right. Busy doing the damn double play shot. <laughs> uh, this shot that's strong, but for a different purpose, didn't fit their needs at the time. Um, finally saw some daylight in the book. Wow. Uh, when, did, when did you discover photography or was it something that was always around the house? I was very fortunate um, uh, in high school. As a junior um, in high school, I wanted to be an architect, and I w did not get into the architectural drawing class. So my second elective choice was the uh, art class. And I had a very young, uh, new art teacher that was very forward thinking and he incorporated in his art curriculum, photography and also filmmaking. And wow. he pushed us and I couldn't get enough of that. And I loved it. And that's the guy that sparked and, and got me in that right direction. And so uh, I did two years of art class in high school for this gentleman. And we were doing some crazy fun stuff. And I was accepted in two schools. One was the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I'm in New Jersey at the time, born and raised. And my other choice was Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, California. Well, growing up in New Jersey, I had New York or I had sunny Southern California. You know what? That was an easy call. So, <laughs> yeah. so I went to Santa Barbara, and I never regretted that decision. Probably one of the best in my life. Was there something in that class that you 
either participated in or took photography wise that just was the spark that you're like, I'm in love. He taught us the art of noticing, the art of noticing the world around us. And he taught us to not overlook so many things that we take for granted and to be, uh, uh, to sharpen our eyes of appreciation of life itself. And it, it may be simple, a uh, little thing that, you know, that we would step over and not even take the time to take note of and photograph it. And the beauty is in the details. And from that point on, my um, my style of covering most anything, especially sports, uh, was focusing on elements. Uh, to me, if you ask me to walk from uh, one dugout to the other dugout across the field, it might take me a half hour because <laughs> I'll stop and photograph uh, the the numbers on the ends of a bat or a ball laying in the grass. Um, those are the little things that speak to the sport um, as much as a ball player swinging at home plate. And, and in my case, I feel even more so. It's it's pretty much an illustrative approach to the to uh, photographing. So you go to Brooks. I mean, that's got to be an absolute, uh, just stunning change in your life. Going from winters and and seasons in Jersey to the beachfront of Santa Barbara in the seventies. I mean, that must have just been just mind blowing. Uh yes. <laughs> that's all I can say is yes. I mean, was there a uh, Beach Boy soundtrack when you landed at, at LAX? Like it was just no clue what I was getting into. Uh, the most beautiful women in the world. Yeah, that's Santa Barbara. It's it's an absolute hidden little gem of a city, and they had this unbelievable little small photo school. Uh, when you show up, I mean, is is it meeting your expectations early on? Are you, uh, you know, taken back? Is it overwhelming? Like walk me through that process as that first couple of weeks. It was overwhelming. And, uh, but I was actually, I, I loved it. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, it was so different. It was so new. There was so much to choose from. It, I was a kid in a candy store. Um, it was, it was awesome. And I met, so many new friends and with everybody having the same, um, mission, um, it was terrific. I, I, one of the best periods of my entire life. Yeah. It's and amazing when you're surrounded by other people that are all going in the same direction and you're just eating it up. Right. And, and, and you quickly find the good people and the people that aren't insecure. You find good people that are willing to help. Um, and it was a very good experience. Yeah. I, 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 to this day, I have lifelong friends uh, as a result of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, was that process, because it's a, it was a commercial school, um, it changed obviously later, but was the slow process of commercial work, was that you know, suiting to you or were you a bit of a freshman spaz who like four by five, what is this? I'm, you know, I want to run around and shoot 35 was, was that process easy for you to kind of glom onto? Cause I'm, I remember it was shocking for me. It was, it was, and it was intimidating because uh, you were forced to learn 
and play with the big boys when you were comfortable with your little 35 yeah. uh, camera. Now you're introduced to large format and you go, this is beyond my comfort level here, but it's a good thing. You had to grow up in a hurry and you, that's where I think knowing different fellow students, they helped each other. We learned a lot from each other, uh, process of trial and error, but I quickly loved it and I couldn't get enough of it. I, I really couldn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it was awesome. It's awesome. And also that's, uh, we may touch on this and follow your lead on that when you talk about the process, because that's the beauty of what you and I could appreciate that experience as compared to the instant gratification of people today, especially when it comes to a, a, an iPhone in their hands. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. Like I had a professor who we had to draw before we even shot. He wanted it, us to conceptualize what we were going to even do. So that process was, was sketching it first before we even went out. So we had an idea of where the shadows would be and what we were trying to create. I mean, it was a whole different world than today. I mean, I remember I got excited when I got to use a Polaroid and actually started to see that. I mean, that was to me like, Oh, thank God. At least I got some idea where I'm at. I mean, now it's, you, you don't even get to, you know, with a mirrorless camera, you're looking at exactly what you're going to get before you even hit the button. L let me ask you, Matt, there is, there is a certain anticipation that is missing from today's technology. And that is, and I don't want to sound like an old guy here chasing kids off the front lawn, but there was that anticipation period that, when we photograph something and we wound up having to go through the technical process of developing and printing and so forth, that period of time before you got the end result was and is now today missing. Back then, there was an anxiety, there was a thrill of knowing, not right then, but eventually knowing if that shot worked, if it was sharp, if it was out of focus, that that timeline is missing now because we see it on the back of the camera instantly. And I kind of miss that period of time and, and, and worrying, wondering, and the thrill you got when it finally did surface and you had that shot. When you're holding that wet roll of black and white film up and you look at what your magnifier loop and you go, yes, it was a longer process, but it was a long, enjoyable process that we don't have. You're absolutely right. Because there was so many steps that went into the process in the past that today doesn't even exist. I mean, how many times did you shoot something and the horror story of either you developing it wrong or the lab. Mm -hmm. and, and then you were screwed and you never saw that stuff and you didn't know. Um, the anticipation of making sure you had all the right gear, you show up and, you know, you have to deal with the, oh God, the stressing client and all this stuff. And you have nothing to show them 
for right. a week or two where now you could be tethered up and you got an art director standing over your shoulder going, that's it. That's perfect. That's what I want. Or you're an absolute fool. Why did we hire you? Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's definite. It's definitely evolved. And it, and I'm glad that I've gone through both of those periods. I think these kids today, and I'm going to be on that porch with you telling them to get off the lawn that I think I'm better for it because my patience, my ability to understand and deal with clients are better for it because I understood what it took and all the steps to make the photo where today they can just take it. Someone can see it on the computer, throw a couple of filters on it and they think they're done. I, I preferred the, the process I went through earlier in my career. I'm going to roll this back and be, if you don't mind for a quick moment. There was time also when we were shooting film that you also shot, especially if it was like journalistic. Uh, I'll give you a, for instance, it was 1977 and um, this eventual photo wound up as the cover shot on my book. Uh, we were on a, a road trip uh, with the Dodgers into Philadelphia Mm-hmm. And on the way in, I said, you know what? I want to mix it up a little bit different. And I want to get a shot of ho- something in the dugout instead of the traditional photo well sites. Right. We were pretty much limited to. So I go, I anticipate hopefully maybe a player coming into the dugout and getting some congratulations and so forth. Show some emotion and wide angle was my way to go on it. So uh, being naive and young. I went upstairs to the Phillies front office, asked them if I could have permission to, to, to work that night in the Dodger dugout. And it's their ballpark. I figured, okay, fine. So they, very nice, said, of course, do your thing. Good luck with it. And when I closed that door, I'm sure they laughed at me because I did not realize at that time that the only person that would give permission, and they don't, was the umpires. Once the game starts, the umpires are in complete charge of your game. Well, I think it was maybe the third or fourth inning. And as it turns out, Dusty Baker for the Dodgers gets scores a run. He comes into the dugout. I happen to have Lasorda in between Dusty, myself, and a couple other players, and they're reaching out to congratulate him as he's coming down the steps. Everything worked for me. Keep in mind, it's black and white, and it's film. The moment I shot that, Matt, you've had it. I had it. That feeling that I don't need to wait. I know I had the shots. <laughs> you don't have to see it on the back of the camera. You knew you got what you were looking for. And that was a case where I knew it before I, I saw it in the dark room. Yeah. Finish the, Isn't which, that feeling in your gut the best? It's it absolutely is. the best drug. And I, I walked away from that high, and I walked back over to Tommy Lasorda uh, and standing where he was at the end of the dugout, and I felt good. I was, like, relieved. I got what I was accomplishing. At that moment, the home umpire, name was Ed Vargo. He was a salty old veteran umpire. He's motioning at my direction for me to, to leave. And I said to Tommy, I, I looked at Tommy. Tommy says, what what's going on? What what is is he referring to you or me? 
And I says, it's for me. He wants me to leave. Well, Matt, here's where I made my big mistake. I said, Tommy, it's okay, though. I've got the Phillies' permission to stay in the dugout. Tommy yells back to him, and he says to the umpire, he yells out, he says, leave the kid alone. He's with us. Now, it's funny because look at all the years that have gone by. He refers to me as the kid. <laughs> but that only irritated the umpire. The mask came off. He walked towards Tommy in the dugout. Tommy bolts out of the dugout. I, like a little girl, run for the tunnel because I knew I was in trouble. The bench coach for the Dodgers, Monty Basgol, is at the end of the tunnel. He's given me a play-by-play of what's going on between Tommy and the umpire. I think I've lost my job. I'm halfway up the tunnel. And he's going, oh, no, Rich, you're in trouble. And I go, oh, shit. And then he goes, Oh, Rich, you've just been kicked out of the game. I'm like, how do you kick out a photographer? Give me a break. Well, Tommy came back into the dugout, gave me all kinds of hell for causing chaos, and he was right. I was kicked out of the game, and Tommy says, you got to go spend the rest of the night up in the clubhouse. I went up to the locker room, but I sat in the locker room, and I was, I knew I had the shot. So that, that, that was, and it, and it turned out that I did have it. So that, anyway, yeah, that's the best feeling though. And even getting oh, yeah. kicked in the nuts, it still didn't bother you. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and you know, I had a limitation. I wasn't super aggressive. I wouldn't get myself purposely in trouble to get a shot. Right. But uh, sometimes it worked and sometimes it doesn't, but. That was the beauty of our profession. Oh, we yes. always we always placed ourselves in a position of challenge, whether it was a big time event or small. You we we, we stepped up uh, with expectations to do a job, and there was a lot of pressure when people are expecting you to deliver visually, um, and that was the satisfaction that we got in return. It was personal. Uh, fulfillment for doing the job yeah absolutely the best part when your time at brooks is coming to an end do you have an idea what you want to do yeah um i wanted to shoot i i I developed a friendship with a with a uh, resident in town and he was the assistant coach of the lakers and photographed his family and photographed him a few times. And he just at that time left the Lakers to become the general manager of a brand new uh, NBA team in New Orleans called the New Orleans Jazz. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to photograph sports really bad. And I wasn't crazy about NBA, but I wanted to be the the photographer for the new um, uh, NBA team, the, the Jazz, which now since moved uh, during time uh, to Utah. And so that's what I had hoped for. But then I got out of that, came back, and I taught for a year uh, in Reseda. And then at that time, I says, I'm still going to pursue my my hope for baseball, and I reached out to the Dodgers. Now, now that's interesting, Greg, because you're at a commercial school, but you're thinking sports, which is not what they're teaching at Brooks. 
And then your overwhelming love of baseball draws you to the Dodgers. I mean, that's kind of not fish out of water, but it's not what is normal at Brooks at the time. You know, people are thinking you're going to go to shoot for Vanity Fair or, or product for Macy's or Nordstrom's or something, you know, high end, not you're going to trudge around with a 35 millimeter gear and shoot baseball. I mean, that's what uh, I did. I did it because I was tired of carrying around a huge box with a four by five in it. My God. And those I, goddamn I wood stick tripod. I'm, I'm too skinny for this thing. The, the, the tripod was a majestic tripod. That does. The thing was a tree. Yeah. My God. Put it on a flatbed just to carry it around, tow it. But yeah, I I, I did. I I went complete because I was a portrait major, and it was boring as hell. And I didn't see myself going opening up a studio. Uh, I didn't want to go down that route. I didn't want to do weddings. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that I can pair up my love of sports and uh, my my love was baseball all mm-hmm. my life. And I never had anything, any photos of any sports. I never photographed any sports. But I knew that I could bring a different look to what I was seeing. So I did a little bit of research with the Dodgers to see what they were using, what they were getting from their people. And so I prepared myself that way. And then I just cold called with a letter, typed letter to... uh, uh, Fred Clare uh, at the time with the Dodgers. And I asked him if I could meet with them and cold Turkey. I went in and I proposed the, uh, at that time, uh, 1976, a multimedia slide presentation. And that consisted Matt of just like slide trays uh, with, <laughs> with a, you know, praying that the slides would drop and, um, and it was, you know, it was synced in and uh, with a soundtrack that was on a uh, cassette tape. And um, so as it turned out, uh, I said, this is what I'd like to do. And the, the smartest thing that I did, and there's not many things I've done that's smart, but in that case, Matt, I said, we'll do this on speculation. It costs no one anything. I absorb the cost. And if you give me four or five games to shoot, I'll show you this. And uh, if you want to purchase it, you can. If you don't, it's fine. But I want to use this as a way to you know, to demonstrate what I could shoot. Mm-hmm. He went for it, and he gave me the, the, the games and the, 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 the passes. I shot it, went back. And here's the thing that was very cool. Set up in the boardroom. Uh, went back to his office. I told him it was ready to go. Now, I've only seen him on and off during those three or four games I photographed. And I'm still nervous as shit. And I'm <laughs> walking down the hallways of a Dodger Stadium in executive row. I'm like in another world because baseball is my life. As we, He says, okay, let's go do it. And as he and I are walking down the hallway... He stops. He says, hold on, Rich. He leans in to the open door office, which was Peter O'Malley's office. And he says, Peter, you have a moment. I want you to see this. I was like, he had full confidence. I could have embarrassed all three of us big time. (laughs) And I go, my legs, if they weren't shaking then, 
he's inviting the owner into this. Went in, it went off without a hitch. It went perfect, and um, I started my career with the, the ball club. Oh man! So it was just, and and Fred will often talk about it, and he'll say, you know, the fact that you were confident. I have to give this guy a chance. I have to give him a chance. And that's where we went with it. And now, did you know anybody at sports at the time, other other sports photographers? Did you reach out to, like, Sports Magazine or SI or anybody and talk to anybody? Didn't know anybody. Wow. No, I just was like, you know, I wouldn't say I was cocky. I was just confident that I would be able to deliver something that, was a little different than what they were talking about or using or seeing. And that was, you know, approaching it a little differently, a lot more macro, a lot more isolated elements of the game. And it was a fresh look. And that's what I enjoyed doing. Now you do apply a lot of macro photography in your work and in baseball. Was that Mm -hmm. something that, you fell in love with when you were at Brooks or was that somebody exposed that to you? A girl that I was seeing that was also a Brooks student, you know, when when you're enamored by a pretty girl, you do a lot of things, right, Matt? (laughs) You do. (laughs) This young lady uh, set the tone for what kind of music I liked. uh, And still to this day, she influenced my, the way I shot. Um, we used to do field trips at Brooks Institute once or twice a year. We would go for a week field trip. And this particular uh, trip that we made, uh, she and I went to uh, Yosemite and we went to Yosemite and anybody that's seen or been there, it's like Ansel Adams paradise of landscapes and all that. Well, this young lady, all she was interested in was photographing mushrooms, uh, macro of these tiny mushrooms, or backlit autumn leaves, or ferns growing out of the ground. And so naturally, what do I do? I'm going to be influenced. I'm going to do exactly what she's doing. And she changed the way I shot. And uh, I always credit her that she showed me a different approach, and somebody looked at the pictures of all the slides I took from a week at Yosemite and they go, my God, Rich, we we wouldn't have known where you were because we don't see one picture of Half Dome or El Capitan. We're (laughs) sick of seeing mushrooms. (laughs) So I carried that, that, that look over because it's little details that speak just as loud as a landscape. Right. Right. Well, I mean, Thank God she was into that and not something like, you know, really expensive like yachting or, or motor cars. You would have been a real poor photographer quick. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Man. So. so when you go to the Dodgers and you lay that out in front of them, are are you worried about how much work can be involved or are you just so much in love with A, baseball and B, photography that you're willing to – just put in the work. I, 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 I did the research of what they were getting, what they were not getting. So I felt I, I had a fresh product to present to them. And whenever you're in a situation, I think there's, there's a safe way to approach. And that is 
you you have to respect your competition, but at the same extent, people don't like to make changes, and they always hope that they can get a better product. And I would tell them, you know, what do you have to offer, Rich? And I say, I have. I can assure you of one thing, and that is a better effort. And that that's a safe zone because if they think that you're going to do your very best, they can't help but compare that to what they're getting now. And they go, well, you know what? Our present source is a little, you know, relaxed and lazy. I don't think they're pushing themselves. They're comfortable with it. I got some young, fresh, aggressive blood here. Why not give the kid a try? And that's how you get in the door. Was... So when's your first year? 76? 76. And I'll tell you what, it was an infield. It was a a weekend series, and I ran around like crazy. Um, (laughs) It was was nuts. Um, I had so much to accomplish in a short period of time. Chicago Cubs were in playing, and on a Sunday afternoon – I needed some wide angle shots of the stadium as well. So I grabbed and I ran up and I had a 20 millimeter wide angle lens and I had to get, I went to the left field corner on the reserve level and I was in the last row so that I could get as wide coverage as I can. Mm -hmm. And I'm up there and everybody, including players were a dot in my viewfinder. I'm up there, and so help me, Matt. There's a commotion going on in left field. And I look down, and there's two people that have a flag on the left field grass, and they're trying to set it on fire. And Chicago Cubs center fielder Rick Mundy comes running over, grabs the flag, saves the flag. It's one of the most... uh, recognizable and important moments in baseball. And I'm standing there with a 20 millimeter uh, a mile away. So all I could do was watch. I felt defenseless. And so um, it was a great shot and it's been used many, many times. Uh, Herald Examiner shooter um, Mm -hmm. photographed it and um, what a beautiful photograph that he got. But yeah, there's, there's things you do, and I was running crazy that weekend, so I, I shot like crazy. I missed a big opportunity, but that was the, the start of my journey was 1976 at that day. Welcome to the big leagues, kid. Jesus. It was a thrill to step out on that grass for the first time and do it. It was Does it, it, was does it still give you chills today, just closing your eyes and thinking about it, that, that you know, at such a young age you're out there on that field? Yeah, exactly, because I grew up as a Mets fan back in Shea Stadium and Yankee Stadium and when I was even younger and just to go see the green grass and and from a distance and see the players in real life you just go wow uh, now I'm I'm down there with a job to do and and the, one of the things that worked for me during my period of time was um, I was blessed with a good group of uh, players through the years they trusted me and I gained the trust uh, and so it was so easy to work with them because they trusted me. How I was not down there collecting autographs. I had a job to do, and um, 
Uh, we spent a lot of time together traveling, and and there was a camaraderie. And keep in mind, it was a different time. Oh, yeah. There was no cell phones. There was no internet. Um, those ball players, their second family, and in a lot of cases, sometimes uh, their first family was their ball players. How did you forge that relationship? What did you do to kind of make them feel comfortable with a man around with a camera? Because that can be weird. I didn't kiss their butt. Okay. And I, uh, I was always very polite. I would approach them. I would never push anything. I didn't want to be a pain. Um, and um, that's how I went about it. Uh, I, uh, I'm not going to get their respect unless I show it. And I'm serious about my job because I saw these guys go out uh, and and empty their tank on the field for their own purpose, their own pride, for their family, their legacy. And it was a good lesson to learn to say, I'm here. I need to do the same intensity of the opportunity. And I'm not going to sit around. I'm going to be out there and I'm going to be working my butt off. And I did. Wow. And I'm proud of the time and effort I put in it. Absolutely loved it. I, uh, I was so, so fortunate to see and do things that I never, ever expected to be able to do and forge friendships. And, and, and then there was that period of time where, unfortunately, we've lost a good deal of ballplayers uh, that have passed since that time. But Going back and seeing reunions and, and seeing these guys, it's, it's terrific. And also with doing the book, it also gave me a chance to uh, reconnect with a lot of the players. And uh, um, it's it's just a very, very, um, I'm very fortunate uh, of, of the friends and also to do something I loved. And, and there was a ball player that said to me one time, uh, I thanked them. And I said, I really appreciate you helping me on this, whatever it was that I was needing to photograph with him. And he says, Rich, he says, you don't have to thank me. He says, I'm glad to do it. He says, remember this. I am just a ball player. I'm fortunate to have the talent to do it. I'm no better than anybody else. He says, you, me, we're all in the same boat, buddy. And I was like, keep it simple. And he did. So. Wow. You, you know, you touched on a little bit because this is what's interesting in that day and age. You talked about your 20 millimeter lens. What was your gear situation coming out of Brooks and taking over the Dodger position? What did well, you have? I had the four by five. I kept a four by five and I only used it for the team photos. Okay. Um, and I remember I had, we did the team photo two times a year, early in the season and the late season. Set up the risers out in left field. We would photograph it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody was notified ahead of time for it. You get it, get there, you do it. Um, they, they knew that they had to be on the risers at 4 o'clock. Well, to get 27, 30 people to sit still in ball players because they're just big kids in uniforms to stand still, especially if you're doing four by five and for the listeners, a four by five is a large format with the bellows and you see the old guys, the vintage where they have the little cape over their head. 
this little container in the back that holds the film. It's a, lo- a prolonged process, but you get the, the high quality out of it. Mm-hmm. That's the camera that we would use. So that's what the equipment I was using. I finally get the players together. And now ball players love to give anybody a hard time. That's oh. in their team. As you know, you've been around it. Yep. I am now set up, ready to go, and I step in front of the camera and I said to the, the guys, guys, once again, I need to remind you, I want to take four shots. Give me two minutes of your time. Don't screw around. Don't mess around. Just do this while I'm doing it. Hang with me. I'll let you know when we're ready to shoot. So forth. At this point, Tommy Lasorda sitting in the front row jumps up, throws his arm in the air, and he says, for so-and-so, so-and-so's sake, get behind the so-and-so camera. What? Uh, who the so-and-so are you? <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille. Let's get the so-and-so over with. He did it, not mean, not angry, but he couldn't pass up an opportunity to bust me. We all fell apart laughing, bent over. And then they had to reorganize guys to get their control and their attention. But that was Tommy. He was, that was an experience and a half. I often described it, that having Tommy as your manager, it was not an English tea experience. <laughs> No, <laughs> it was really Matt. A keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times because uh, that that was Tommy, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. No, they they don't make them like that anymore. Thank God. Um, but equipment wise, I'm sorry. No, Again, it was not digital. But you had your long lenses. I used Nikon. Um, and it was uh, a range of wide angles, medium lenses, uh, 135, 105, uh, and then 400 um, telephotos. So, uh, and again, those were not automatic either, Matt. You, you had to focus. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the technology did not do that for you. Was that challenging going from a 4x5 to a 400 millimeter lens and, and, oh. and following baseball? No, it wasn't. Uh, no, because I was, you know, eventually I opened up my own commercial business and I used four by five and m- more so two and a quarter Hasselblad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was, you know, I didn't live for the four by five. I used it uh, only when I absolutely had to. So um, I was always most comfortable 35. Wow. So going from the four by five to 35 for sports it was very easy now you were there at 76 so that's a bit of a change right because they're going from one manager to another that's tommy's first year if i'm correct tommy's first year was 77 okay uh, so he's all, the third base coach at the time he's the third base coach and uh so there was the transition of tommy to walter i really really enjoyed walter walter was um he was 180 degrees from Tommy. He's a quiet <laughs> gentleman, um, old school baseball. And uh, I enjoyed, I used to play golf with him all the time in spring training. And uh, just a good man, just a good baseball man. Um, so I really enjoyed him. Uh, Tommy, 
he was a dream for any um, shooter for us to, to have around. Uh, if there was a competition between team photographers, uh, I would have had to have been disqualified because having Tommy as a manager, that's, that's such an advantage. <laughs> such a crazy time. That must've been <laughs> unbelievable. Was, oh, so give me a, give me a day in a life, at, uh, you know, on your first year, because my time with the angels was totally different. I'm digital. I've got fiber optic lines. We're transmitting on the road. What was like for you, your responsibilities on a normal Tuesday night game? Well, it would be probably, you know, you go in and uh, you would shoot. And I would probably say that on a game, I would probably shoot. Well, we lived in a world of 36 exposures. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably come out of that uh, that that game with maybe seven to eight rolls of film um, because I wasn't like a UPI or back then or an AP shooter. They shot minimal, okay, because they don't have time to sit and process eight rolls of film. They got to get it and you know get it on the wire services or meet their deadline. So. For me, I would shoot a lot of stuff prior to a game and then afterwards or throughout. So I had a lot of blanks to fill in, so that's why I shot a lot. Uh, But then the next morning I would process and then print. And um, So you do it the next morning. You wouldn't do it that night. So you had to go to bed hoping that it was all days. Yeah. No, it never really bothered me. I mean, I looked forward to it if there was something exciting. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll tell you what I did do in the evenings one time and it was a two week span and I had long days. I got very little sleep. I covered the U S um, well, not just the U S but 1984, the Olympics and the baseball competition at Dodger stadium. They held it. And that was a two week event uh, of competition. And Thoroughly enjoyed it because it was so crazy, exciting, and, and enthusiasm that was there. Uh, I I processed everything at night because I was eager to see stuff. And, uh, wow. yeah, it was – but that was the routine. And then you'd be down on the field at uh, – I would be down on the field early because I would a lot of do a lot of stuff that maybe I didn't even need a ball player for. But um, that was the process. And then it was a little different on the road. Uh, if you traveled, um, a lot of times I didn't touch processing for, for a while. So. Oh, man. Was there some stories? Did you travel on the road? Because always when you get on the road, that's when it's wild. That's when it's fun. Everybody's away from their families. The guys have routines. They got to go to this well, restaurant. I, I I behave myself. Now, let me make sure that we get clear. Okay. That's my disclaimer. Ask no questions. I tell you no lies. Because <laughs> that's, that's when that. it's fun. Like, I went to museums with guys. We went to aerospace. Like, because some, they are guys, and especially the starting pitchers, they'll have three or four days off. So well, they, they want to kind of see yeah. stuff. I went to Alcatraz with some of the guys. I mean, it's. That's the fun part of being with the normal. Oh, times players. have changed, Matt. I, we, 
we would go out in the evening, but it wasn't to a museum. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm trying not to get us arrested. (laughs) It could be a theater, but it wasn't the the theater you want to see coming out. No. (laughs) Okay, so there's a, I want you to tell the story. There's a great story that there's a rain delay in the 77 World Series, I believe it is. Oh, yes. Wow. That's, um, I mean, this, this people would, Rich, give an arm, a kidney, oh, maybe I a know. first child for the, for the evening you had. Well, what happened was the, the game was rained. It was called. It, it rained. In, it was the World Series between the Dodgers and the Yankees. We were in New York, and the game at Yankee Stadium was called off early in the day. So none of us left to go to the ballpark. And I happened to run across Tommy in the, in the lobby. And Tommy said to me, he says, Rich, he says, um, would you, would you, do, you got any dinner plans? And I said, uh, no. And he says, why don't you join us? He says, a couple of us are, are going out. And he says, why don't you come along? And I, he says, meet me here at five, meet us down here at five. And then he said to me, oh, by the way, don't, don't bring your camera. It's not necessary. Take the night off. Don't, you know. And I wasn't one that always had my camera around my neck, but I thought it was odd that he would say that because Tommy loved pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just said, oh, that's strange. Why would he make a point of not bringing my camera? But that's all right. So, and uh, we piled into a, in a cab. And there was like, I think, three or four of us. And we get into a checkered cab and we go out to uh, Little Italy section of, New York and get out and and, and honestly God man it, it reminded me of a scene out of Godfather because it was that type of restaurant and he actually had to step down off the sidewalk and the, the restaurant was below street level oh. and when it, the manager or the owner greeted us escorted us through the dining room past all the other diners and it was red checkered Italian you know, setting down a hallway and we walk into a back room that only had one round table and there was two gentlemen sitting at the table. One I didn't recognize and the other one that I was going to be breaking bread with beyond my wildest expectations. It was Joe DiMaggio. And I'm like, whoa. I had to have an internal conversation with myself to say, keep your mouth shut <laughs> and to listen and absorb this. And it was a memorable evening, as you can imagine. When you have ballplayers sitting and coaches or managers and, and Joe D uh, sitting and sharing stories and laughs, I go, I had to pinch myself. I go, this, how many people I watched growing up the best game out of every Yankee season uh, in New York was old timers game. And they always saved Joe D for the last introduction because he owned baseball. He owned New York. That was the guy. And now I'm sitting next to him enjoying a meal. I was like, Matt, I, 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 to this day, I can't describe it. I mean that that alone 
<laughs> just being the fly on the wall is that is priceless. You're there already with, you know, Tommy and you're in course, yeah. little Italy and it's an aw It's a rain delay, you know, in the world series, but these don't happen. And then you are was, sitting there with him. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I'm, I'm but, telling you there's, there's, I'm saying most of New York would sever their own liver. <laughs> that, but here's the key to it. And you've been around sports. Yeah. Not. And my dad taught me this. He always pounded in my head. He says, Rich, you're going to meet people. And you're going to meet all kinds. You're going to meet some very important, influential people. He says, Please, please never, never be intimidated by them, but always, always show them respect. And I'll tell you what, that helped me a lot of times. Being around ballplayers, and you've been around it, you can't kiss their butt. You have to just be good, make it clear that you have an obligation and you take your role important and you will have enjoy friendships with these guys, but you just don't kiss their butt. That's no, the way you can't, you can't at all. Cause then they own you Yeah, and don't respect you. Yeah. And so yeah. Wow. Something else. Yeah. That was, that to me was very, very cool. So One other item that I always stuck in my mind was my daughter was born in 70, Eight, okay, and um, I come home now. Keep in mind, technology was different. I come home from the hospital late in the evening, and lo and behold, I didn't shoot that night because of you know her birth. Um, turns out that uh, my answering machine, the little tape cassette, is burned out. I mean, it's full. And it was all people calling to say, oh, my God, we learned about, you know, the birth. And, and and they had her name and everything. And I'm like, how did these people know? Well, Ross Porter, longtime announcer with the Dodgers, announced my daughter's birthday and welcomed her into the Dodger family on the radio broadcast. I'm going to my daughter, Laura, going, someday you're going to realize this is crazy. You know, what a, what a way to enter the the world and have a, a class move like that by the Dodgers to welcome her. So, wow. Things that you just don't forget. What what else were you doing at the time? When this, when, you know, you, you got to supplement other income. I mean, the Dodgers aren't paying you at that I time. I was just... Yeah, I, I, you know, I was doing commercial work, whatever I could. And um, then at the point of after, you know, 784, uh, um, you know, I was building up. I was I was actually had different travel plans, but then I changed and I the, the decided to open up my own commercial studio. And I did that in Pasadena okay. and photographed the world of uh, uh, food and uh, did a lot of food and it was a different, uh, different thing. You, I didn't care for it because there was no interaction. I mean, you know. Yeah, talk to me, salad. Talk to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, but I did it. It was good. It was a good account. I handled, um, you know, um, one of the major food uh, companies. 
and uh, so it was it was fun. Now I'd be a fool if I don't talk about this because you had a front row seat to probably something that'll never happen in sports. I mean, I can't even. It, it's just I think it was the perfect place, perfect culture, perfect city. But that nineteen eighty one season with Fernando, this you know, 38 year old rookie or however he old he was back then. (laughs) But he was 61. (laughs) But Fernando mania, I remembered as a kid, like all of a sudden I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm a Dodger fan, but now I'm like a Fernando fan. I wanted to throw left-handed. Like it was unbelievable. What was it like sitting in that phenomenon front row? The, um, he, he he was very vulnerable. He was very shy. Uh, he had to trust people because it was so overwhelming for him. Yeah. He had a sense of humor. Um, and I believe he knew more English than he let on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But He's got a wicked and, sense of humor. Yeah, if coming up and playing it out, he really counted on people around him to, he trusted them that they would look out for his best benefit. And there's a segment that I referred to um, in the story in the book where I think he was going after his fifth shutout. It was in late April or whatever it was, but the town was, as you know, the city was turned upside down. It, it was. Uh, any Hispanic markets were empty. Everybody was home to watch it or they were at the ballpark. Yeah. If they could get in the ballpark, they were on the streets around the ballpark. So it was chaotic. I mean, was that nuts? To, to, did that all of a sudden change the way, like, I've got to capture this hysteria as much as like your job is to cover the team, yeah. but like I had to cover the, the entire experience. And so it was a challenge, but it was, it was fun. I mean, I embraced it, uh, but it was just crazy craziness. And as it turned out, he was pitching this one particular night going after his fifth shutout or whatever it was. He was, it was at the, the peak of his, on the front of the uh, chaos. Mm-hmm. And before the game, you could just feel it. That's that ballpark was electric with excitement and everybody, they had their Mexican flags that they were, oh, yeah. it was loud. And, and you're an hour away from the game. And so I'm looking for Fernando and I can't find him. And I'm going like, where is he? And so it's now getting close to maybe, you know, 30 minutes before the game, 35 minutes before the game. I still don't see him. So I walk in the trainer's room. And I don't normally went in the trainer's room, but I walked in and our trainer, Bill Bueller, who was a great guy, he says to me, he says, Rich, what, do me a favor and tell our friend over there that he's got to warm up. Matt, I look across the, the trainer's room. And it's Fernando, fully dressed, and he's laying on a table, sound asleep with a towel over his face. The world is going nuts outside, down the tunnel, and the field, 
and this kid is sound asleep. And I walk over, and I lean down into him, and I said, Fernando, it's game time. You got to warm up. Startled him a little bit, but he said, you know, he said gracias to me, <laughs> and and nodded his head, and he sat up, grabbed his glove, and he strutted out to the bullpen to warm up for the game. That was, he had ice in his veins. He just is not intimidated by anything. That was the kid in him at that point. It didn't get to him, didn't bother him. And I was like, what a contrast of this whole environment that's gone like zany, and then you've got this kid that's sound asleep taking a nap. <laughs> Jesus. It is strange. Very strange. Where was your favorite place to photograph in Dodger Stadium? Because it was much different then than it is today. I mean, the the whole stadium has completely changed from the field level shooting position. I'll tell you what, you know, I walked, I, I went down there, oh, in 2007, 2017, could it be that long ago? Let's say five, six years ago, I went down there for an event uh, as a guest. I was on the field before the game. And I'll tell you what, Matt, I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was changed so much. There was so much regulation, so much personnel walking around, getting in the way with credentials around their neck. I lived that experience with a skeleton staff that I never had to show my credential to anybody, uh, maybe once a year to a new security guard. Um, And I kept that in my wallet. Now you see it the way it is. It's, it's a, it's an exaggerated Chuck E. Cheese experience now. And I hated it. I, I go, boy, I'm glad I had my time when I did it. And I meant that sincerely. And so, my favorite spots were, um, the, my favorite spot would have been probably the uh, two inside photo wells on okay. either side of the dugout, depending yeah. on who was pitching. And I think probably my favorite would have been the third base inside well because that put me right next to uh, the Dodger dugout mm-hmm. and the action that was going on. I mean, it, the just the visuals of the stadium were different, different back then. Walter EO says that photo when the Cardinals visited a Dodger stadium and they're in their baby blues right? in the visitors dugout. And they're the same color as the wall. There's two players there and they're just kind of waiting for the game to start. And Walter paints this like perfect picture of these two guys today. There would be advertising and led lights and signage and crap and seeds and gum. But then it's just a clear clean Dodger blue wall. The whole stadium was a virgin, uh, virgin stadium for the most sake. Yeah, it was a clean canvas. Yeah, it really was. And uh, that was the beauty of it. Mid-century, beautiful stadium. And now it's, it's like uh, driving into Vegas. Yeah, it's stimulation overdrive. Yeah, and, and overload, um, and it's a turnoff to me. I think you know. To be honest with you, I left in '84. I'll, I'll say that all those years I've gone back to see a game. Um, only because I was invited, 
I can count the amount of games I've been to as a fan on one hand. Yeah. Because I, I don't miss it. Did you befriend a lot of the local photographers at the time, whether at the Herald or the LA Times or if SI brought guys in? Um, to some point. Um, I, I, I didn't... They had a role to do. I was always accommodating to help them as much as I could. Mm-hmm. If I had a staked out a spot in a, in a well and somebody wanted that, I, you know, I would do my best to accommodate or switch uh, because I was still a member of the Dodgers and our priority was to help and assist others too. You know, right. I just didn't play hardball with that. I did have... I did have a case. This is interesting. You get a kick out of this. I don't know what year it was, but my um, one of my bosses said to me, he says, Rich, will you help out a, a shooter uh, the next two nights and show them the ropes around the stadium? He's never photographed baseball before. And I uh, says, okay. And he says, just stay with them. Tell them where to anticipate, what's a good place to shoot. And then he says to me, he says, oh, and by the way, he doesn't speak English. Oh, Jesus. Well, I did. I spent two two games with them. The young kid was so nice. Couldn't have been nicer, more appreciative. I showed him, you know, in addition to the game, what to do, this, that, or the other. Uh, I show them the importance of where the press box was and where the press dining room was, where you can eat and all this. I showed them the, the whole deal. Couldn't have been nicer for two nights and always appreciated me. I had no idea that I was teaching a Pulitzer Prize winning Nick Hutt how to shoot baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and for the listeners, Nick Ut is from Vietnam, and he, in many ways, I believe, helped change the world, uh, ending helping end the Vietnam War because he photographed the young girl, the napalm girl, uh, and other children running down that that road, uh, and she was burning. Uh, right, Matt, and uh, yeah. that that photograph itself impacted American culture so bad. Nixon was the president at the time, and uh, Nick really left a mark on on this world with this photograph. I cannot believe you were teaching Nikki how to shoot <laughs> baseball. <laughs> <laughs> that is unbelievable. Oh my God, that's fantastic! And I, I either after I found out who he was, <laughs> and he doesn't speak much English. To this day, he barely speaks much English. <laughs> I love that guy to death. <laughs> oh, he just retired recently. Yeah, he just well, retired recently, a couple of years ago, and I've been tracking him to drag him get it on this podcast but the man's globing all over the world going here with like and there with like and he's doing uh, i'm blanking on the young woman's name the the napalm girl i hate to call her that but that's what she's referenced as is that they're doing this campaign so they've been jaunting all over the world uh t- telling the story so it's uh, very interesting but 
I cannot <laughs> believe that that that's who you're. I mean, all the people you you know, quote unquote, could be babysitting that night, and it's Nick of all people. I know. It's it's that's awesome. That's crazy awesome. world, isn't it? It is, and it's small too. That's the thing. Like, even if you traveled with the team. You run into a bunch of photographers. You might have seen their byline on AP or this and that. And, you know, you I always found of- traveling was some of the best times because you got to meet all these other interesting photographers. Right. You did. And, um, yeah, it was it was always good. But, you know, it was a good time. It was it was a, it was a great time because road trips were longer, too, back in the, my time. Yeah, my, they could be like 17 days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Christ, you could, you know, you, you can almost forget people at that point, you know, that's a long time. So you must have, you must enjoy a friendship with a mutual friend of mine that I think the world of uh, Tim Mead. Oh yes. Is that, is, you know, there's, there's good people and there are some very exceptional friends and Tim is right there. How, how do you know Tim is just from the baseball time? Through baseball times, yeah. Yeah. And Tim is a super, super nice guy. Super great guy. I'd love to have him on. Um, he's got baseball stories that can go on forever. He's he's fantastic. Uh, now, he's from Diamond Bar. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. yeah, he's living and chilling as a grandpa in Diamond Bar. And when he took the position as president of Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and he got there, soon after he was there, he opened up a package, a delivery from me. And what it was, it was a snow shovel. <laughs> and on the blade <laughs> snow shovel, I had painted upside down so that as you shovel and you can see it, it's spelling, you know, it's, it's facing upside down. So if you're shoveling, you see it, uh-huh. read correctly, it says, Diamond Bar, California, 87 degrees. <laughs> oh, that's so rotten. He's originally going to be on the play of my office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, they don't make them like that anymore. Isn't that a great thing, though, when you look back and through your time and experience, it's the friendships that you walk with. Oh, that, absolutely. That's the greatest gift. Absolutely. We could, we could always say, hey, this is cool to experience this or that. But the friendships don't go away. No, they don't. They, they don't. They, no one could take it away from you. It's strange. When you're developing in the 80s and into the 90s a client list, were were there any things you would kind of like do over again? Or were you happy the, with the way the career was going at that time? Because digital's on the horizon, it's coming, and they're talking about it. And the styles were changing. Needs of clients were changing. Was that an easy period for you? I made a change in the 90s. I moved to Michigan. Okay. That was a mistake in the big picture. Um, we moved. My wife was originally from Michigan, and we moved. We thought it was best for the kids, and um, in many ways it was. Uh, but that really threw my career off. And so not until I came back uh, in the 2000 um, time period that I reestablished and, and got back in the group. So there was a period of time 
because for me to make that adjustment uh, when we were just introduced to digital and so forth, uh, it just was not a good time. Right. Uh, it's tough. It was a rough time for a lot of people. And, uh, and the industry itself, we didn't know. I mean, the technology was so new. We did not understand. The camera companies did not understand. The computer companies did not understand how it was going to change. How much hard drive space. You know, putting things on CDs and then became DVDs. And why does it matter to shoot in RAW? And what? how much compression can you do? Uh, there were so many things. It was It was wild for eight or nine years trying to figure that out. But uh, you know, one thing though, when it came to business, I will say, I will share, and you you know it yourself, is for me in my spot, um, I could have been the worst photographer going. I could have been mediocre. It didn't matter because as long as I had that marquee value of the label of the Dodger photographer, that opened up so many doors that you would be foolish if you didn't play that card tactfully. And business uh, and clients, that carried so much weight that you were almost embarrassed by it. Oh, I'm sure, especially in that time in the 80s. That that must have been a huge brand. And And I even saw it down on the field where you would have, um, through, you know, different connections with the front office they would have these you know these high level business folks bring their kids down to meet some players collect some autographs or whatever it may be and when they were on the field there's something about the game of baseball and major leaguers a guy that would be down there that wouldn't give me the time of day on a business level uh, once he interacted with me, just the lowly photographer. He was, he was in awe of anything that was going on down there. They, they couldn't, they didn't carry their ego. They were around a ball player. They were toast. Oh yeah. And if you carried the label of saying I'm the Dodger photographer, um, in most circles, you got their attention and their respect that they wouldn't give to somebody else. So you had to play that card as much yeah. as you could. Yeah, I mean, you could have grown-ass men in Fortune 500 companies running them, multimillionaires, billionaires, and you would bring a baseball player around, a guy basically in pajamas with a leather glove, and you would watch grown men turn into a bag of jelly. <laughs> yeah, you see it. I mean, it's unbelievable. This... Do you remember Tony Orlando? Yes, the... yes. Tony, uh, Tony, I, I featured him also in the book. He had seats in the dugout box seats mm-hmm. uh, back then. And he carried no ego. He would come into the photo well and start talking with me. <laughs> and he's a New Yorker, me being Jersey. We had so much in common. He was a Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris guy uh, back then, and so was I and, mm-hmm. in the six, early 60s. And we we bonded and formed a good friendship of just over baseball. And when he'd come out to the park, every game he would come over, he'd buy me a beer <laughs> at the concession stand and bring it, and he would stand in the photo well, and, and he'd give me a beer, and he had one, and we would just – 
all those years. It's just people and the game of baseball. It's it's amazing. That's great. But, you don't get that often that somebody's coming up and buying you a beer. Right. No, that doesn't happen. But those are the friendships that you can form around baseball. Now, also, I've seen, because if I'm in that photo well that's right next to the Dodger dugout, I've seen a lot of crippled kids that learned how to run really <laughs> well once they got a ball from the ball boy. <laughs> Parents yeah. would come up and say, oh, my, my son is deathly ill. Can I have a ball? And get the ball, and then he's running. Yeah. You know, it's I'm making an exaggeration. But, but it's yeah, true. I've seen polio change. Yeah, polio <laughs> change. Yeah, I've seen a kid who's drooling. All of a sudden, somehow he snaps out of it and he's going to MIT. And you're like, "Oh, you Matt, wanted." You, what's your favorite memory? What's your you, you, Well, okay, so we were in we were in um, we were in Chicago with the Cubs uh, thirteen, and uh, there was uh, Albert Pujols. He's his uh, then wife had a daughter with Down syndrome. And there was a father trying to get his son close to Albert, who had that the, the, the son had Down syndrome and just wanted to see Albert. And I could see him, you know, it's crowded before the games and he's in the stands. And Wrigley's very uh, accessible. It's low. It's not, there's not a lot of barriers. And he's doing his best. And I just went over to Albert and I said, hey, uh, behind uh, our dugout past the line, there's a father who's really trying to get your attention. I didn't mention the kid, right? right. I didn't want to go there. I just want, and I, but I could, you know, this dad's really trying to get your attention. So he looks over my shoulder and sees that man with that child. And uh, Albert at that point in his career wasn't moving fast, but he all of a sudden looked like Jesse Owens because he sprinted over there, went over there, talked to the father, hugged the child, and said, I'll be back at the end of the game. And at the end of the game, Albert took his jersey off and gave it to that kid. I remember the incident. And got a lot of play. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the father's crying. Like the father's literally funeral crying, like just sobbing because that moment that he's having with his child and Albert. And it's just so endearing. It's like it doesn't take much to make a, a life memory like that in someone's life and it happens a lot and for the four years I was with the club it was nice to see that happen to see little things like that uh Hector Santiago did that for a kid and and just signed a ball and made sure that that boy got it and it's little stuff like that where you're just like oh man unbelievable I mean I don't know did you do a lot of um events away like where maybe the teams went to schools or kind of events off the field yeah it would would happen um not that often they they did a really nice thing they adopted a school an elementary school solano school right there next to dodger stadium and they had the kids there and they would do lots of different seminars they had the kids graduate at home plate but uh didn't have you know, when you talk about the little nuances, Tommy Lasorda was amazing with children. Uh, he would stop whatever he was doing, especially if there was a child that was disabled. Mm-hmm. And he always would get down to their level, and it was 
heartwarming to see. There's a side of him that people would not expect or not see, you know, in most cases this way. Yeah. I remember one year we had a kid that was down there, uh, a young little boy in a wheelchair. I think it was March of Dimes. And they brought him down in the wheelchair in the afternoon um, for a picture with Tommy. Tommy came out, and the parents were there, and the little boy, and he kneeled down next to this kid, and the kid had a great personality. And Tommy loved this kid and talked to him and then said to the parents, can I take him for a while? Tommy only had to pose with a picture with him and be done with it. But Tommy, on his own initiative, asked the parents, can I take him? And they said, sure. Tommy takes and wheels this kid down the dugout, down the steps. They help him get down, and he takes him up the tunnel into his office, sees the office. He shows him all the pictures on his wall, is talking to the kid, signs an autograph picture for the kid, takes him into the locker room to meet the different ball players and so forth. And he was just beside himself, happy to help this kid. Those are the little things that get no publicity. Nobody sees it. And you just go, they're humans. They, yeah. and, and, they, and that's what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. Everybody has some compassion. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that it's kind of nice to actually see it happen. And it doesn't need to be overexposed by, you know, CBS or ABC to be there. But to just witness it, I saw it with um, Tyler Skaggs, who passed away. But he, when he, he was a Santa Monica kid, and he went back to the high school to visit them. It was one of his off days. But they only let, I don't know, 40 kids come visit. Like, I don't know if it was some AP class or whatever. But he goes into the gym. He meets a bunch of kids, and he does his thing, and everybody's happy, and he's signing autographs and taking selfies. But we're leaving everybody's gone. It's just him and I, I don't even know if we had a handler. Like, I don't know if Tim came or whoever, but we're walking past the class and you know, those little windows you can see into classrooms and he just starts popping his head in. He's like, Hey, how you doing? What class is this? We're supposed to be out of there. What was supposed to be like a two minute walk now is taking like 30 minutes. Cause he's walking into classrooms and all these kids are losing their mind. And it's like, I, I took maybe one or two photos because that wasn't need to be that was not needed to be exposed and seen. It was his moment. And it was just an honor to see it happen. I'll tell you a quick story here, Matt. Many you talk about a timeline of things. Tommy, I think the best uh, description that was Bob Costas would give of Tommy, he would use the word bombastic <laughs> description of Tommy. <laughs> And, and in many times that was true of Tommy. He was, you know, over the top. Um, but you look at the years and the time and the timeline. Uh, I knew Tommy at the height of his popularity and, and his game experience. And then many, many years later, he's now retired and he's at the end of his life. And a friend of mine that used to work in the front office stayed in touch with Tommy, young guy. And he says to Tommy, he stayed in touch with Tommy, and he says, Tommy, my my, my youngest is in the Little League. Um, he says, do you think you would be 
willing to come out and speak to his little league team? Tommy says, yes. And this was probably a year before Tommy passed away. And so I went down to photograph him. And Tommy and his assistant, full-time assistant, uh, brought him to the field on a golf cart because Tommy wasn't walking at the time. And so he met the, the kids, and he's, this is before their game. He says to, to my buddy, he says, to the father, he says, can I take him out in left field and talk with them alone? And he says, of course. So Tommy goes out into the right field. They get a chair, and he sits on a chair, and these little kids, little leaguers, are sitting in a circle, semicircle around in front of him. And Tommy said to the kids, he says, we're not going to talk about uh, fundamentals of baseball. I'm not going to try to teach you how to make a double play or do this or that. He says, you're too young for that. He says, what I want to talk to you about is quality of life and a responsibility that you have to respect your parents and listen to your mom and dad and elders and, and this or that, all the good things in life to be a better person. He never talked baseball. He talked about life and how he envied them at their age that they have their life in front of him. His is closing out, but he wanted to spend time with the kids to teach him about character. And at the end of that talk, when he kind of indicated that he's wrapped up, one of the little kids got up, walked up to him, shook his hand and thanked him for coming out to spend time with him. The kid couldn't have been more than six years, seven years old. And it just blew me away to watch this play out. Tommy was at his most comfortable talking with those kids and nothing to do with baseball. And I go, how life changes or how life, you know, evolves all these years. Wow. You know, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. Those little backstories we have that, you know, you really only get in sports. No one has that when you're shooting food, you know, you don't sit there and tell a salad, a good story. Matt, we had a we had a 1981 World Series. We talked about that earlier, and um, it was 81, and it was chaotic celebration in the clubhouse, visitors' clubhouse, Yankee Stadium, beating the Yankees. And throughout the celebration and all that chaos, as you know and you've seen, I found myself after about a half hour of it or so. I went down the hallway and down the hallway away from all the indicate all the chaos going on celebration. I run across Bobby Welch, the pitcher, young Bobby Welch, and he's pushing an industrial broom and he's sweeping up a mess and he's half dressed. And I'm like, I photographed him. I was close with Bobby. I was friends and found it odd for him to be so separated and pushing a broom. And I took the shot of him, and, he, and then it dawned on me a minute afterwards. The poignancy of that moment was nobody would know unless they knew the story. Who cares about Bobby Welch pushing a broom? The story was, was that the kid 
was strong enough to separate himself from that clubhouse. He had spent two months in rehab earlier in the year for alcohol. And so he could not allow himself at the pinnacle of his career to celebrate with his peers a World Series championship. He, strong enough, fortunately for him, he had strength to stay away from it and keep himself busy pushing a broom around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you don't have the story, you don't know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, no. it's, all good. It's, it, those are, those are the stories that are priceless though. Absolutely uh, priceless. It's, it's, you know, when we look around and we go, shoot, as a team photographer, one of my best parts though, looking back, Matt was I could say I worked for the Dodgers for 30 years or 50 years, whatever. The fortunate part for me was I wasn't stuck in the ticket department for 30 years selling tickets in my cubicle. As team photographer, I had the added benefit that I had to interact with everyone from the owner to the kid in the clubbies, and, and, you know, picking up socks. Right. You had to be able to deal with them all, even vendors, fans. You had to be rounded to be able to, to carry yourself with all that, but you also had the benefit of being exposed and interact with people at all levels. That was a, that was a very cool uh, part and benefit of that experience. When did the book idea come about? What was the light bulb? The book bulb? came about, the idea came about uh, soon after O'Malley sold the club. Wow. Okay. So I mean, that's been it's a while. Been yeah. It's been a long while. And I approached, um, I approached the Dodgers and, and I got nothing response back from them because they had the work. They had all in the archives. Finally, I approached again and it was Frank McCourt and of all the things that have been said negative about Frank McCourt, he did respond to me and he um, says, come and talk to me. He spent an hour and a half with me and we sat in his office and we talked about the book idea. And I says, I'd like to have access to this work and do a book. And I think it would be a good book that, you know, the Dodgers, um, it would, it would be good for everybody involved and he wouldn't do it. And the reason was, and I completely understood there was an anniversary coming up, maybe 50 years of Dodgers in LA or whatever. He wanted to do a book of photographs throughout that entire LA time by all of the official Dodger photographers. Okay. And, if I was in his spot, I, I would do it that way as well. But I wanted to do my own work. I didn't want to share it. So it went nowhere. And then until recently in the last couple of years, reached out to the Dodgers again. And um, we were able to uh, uh, figure it out, got the thing arranged and um, uh, access. And and it was a it was truly a labor of love to do it in a project. I'm glad it's over with, um, but <laughs> who yeah. helped you along with it? The project. Cause something like that is a mammoth undertaking. I did it myself. <sighs> Believe it or not <laughs> self published. Uh, I did it myself, designed it, wrote it, 
Um, and uh, I reached out to a lot of ball players uh, for any input and storylines. I got a great story for you. If I'm taking too much no, time. No, hell, Rich. We could be here all day. I'm not going anywhere. This is the best day of my life. Mark Cressy is a um, um, was for the Dodgers a bullpen coach. Uh-huh. Young guy, one of the hardest working guys and funny and one of the nicest people you'd want to run across. And there's a lot of those folks that we know. Oh, yeah. Mark Cressy shared a story with me. And being a bullpen coach, his responsibility is warming up pitchers and so forth and managing the bullpen. Mm-hmm. He shared with a story with me, and I believe it was 1974, and they were in Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and it was late September, and it was a rainy day. Um, the field was soaked, drizzling, cold, brutal cold, and windy, and he was walking Don Sutton out to the bullpen to warm him up. And Sutton was going for his 20th win that night. And as they were walking out there, Sutton says to Mark, he says, I guarantee a win tonight. Because he was going for his 20th win that night. And he said, I guarantee a win. And Mark says to him, he says, how can you be so confident, Sut? And he says, let me tell you a quick story. When I first came up, he says, I didn't do well at all. I struggled. I struggled so bad that Alston pulled me over to the side one time, and he says, look, kid, you got to get it together because it's going to be a cold day in hell when you win 20. <laughs> <laughs> And given the conditions, the wind, the rain, and the cold, and Sutton going for his 20th, he saw all the indications that he was guaranteeing a win. And he went out and he won, and he won his 20th. And Candlestick, of all places, is hell. Oh, yeah. Good God. Whipping wind, all that misery and the trash and all the fans. That's a god-awful place to photograph, no less play. Mark was old when they opened it. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> they couldn't have blown that place up any quicker. Good God. What a what a dump. Obviously, there was no uh, requirements in building a Major League Baseball stadium and saying, yeah, don't face it into the wind and then the cold and put it right on the water. Literally. I mean, it was just like everything wrong with how you'd want a stadium. <laughs> yeah. And don't put a bathroom in the uh, visitor's dugout. <laughs> well, or you could be like Oakland and put one in that just floods. So, you know, either way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Did, never shot in Oakland. You yeah. never shot in Oakland? Uh-uh. Have you no. ever spent time with uh, Michael Zagaris? No. Mm-mm. Oh, my God. You guys could tell stories forever. Yeah. <laughs> He's been there since the... I think he started in 76 or 77 as Oakland uh, photographer. He's still there. God love him. He's still going. There's a good book out on Oakland, uh, Jason Turbo. Do you know Jason? A writer. 
Uh, yes, I know. Him, I know him as a writer. Yeah, I've never met him, but I, I, I know his work. And then he did a book on the Dodgers' 1981 season as well. Right. Uh, they they bleed blue, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Good. It's a good book. Good. Uh, he's a good writer. <laughs> when Very. you were when you were doing your book, how, how long did it take? You know, it took me. I would say a year. Okay, not bad. Um, maybe a little longer. Um, there's minimal writing. Okay. It's mostly a picture book. It's a coffee table, hardcover, mm-hmm. uh, all black and white. I purposely kept it black and white. Um, even color, I converted uh, to black and white. I oh, really? Okay. I've all, I've always been a big black and white fan, and I always feel that for a image to be strong, you don't have to rely on color as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. There are instances where it is, and that does make the shot is the color. But right. in most cases, I believe the content of a black and white image has to be strong enough to carry that image and not have it you know, supplemented by color. Um, so I intentionally kept everything black and white. I didn't want somebody to come through and say, Oh, once they saw a choice, they go, oh, this would have been pretty color. If they didn't have a choice in it, you know, let's, let's go across the board black and white. I wanted a gallery feel. Right. I ordered mine, but I don't, I'm not going to get it till like December. Yeah, you know, and it really upsets me with Amazon because they print it. And I says, why in the world is this pushed back so far? And they said, well, it's, you could expect it to be two to three weeks but we just put the six to seven weeks in as a safety precaution. And I'm going, yeah, well, thanks a lot because anybody that sees that, that's a hindrance and even ordering it. So, you know, you're dealing, Matt, with uh, Amazon. (laughs) You have no leverage. Yeah. The power of Amazon. Do you, do you sell any of your photos? Are those available to fans? If you go to, um, my website for the book and it's called the Dodger collection.com. Okay. Uh, on that website, there's a link to uh, images from the book that are available for people to purchase. And they have different sizes that are available and different formats, different paper styles, uh, uh, framing and so forth. So yeah. it's all done. There goes my afternoon. I'm going to be spending some money. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's a, um, it's an interesting uh, process because it's all, you know, every, the company handles the fulfillment. I don't really leave my fingerprints on it at all. Did you, um, did you have a nice relationship with Mike Socha? Socha? Uh, it was okay. Um, okay. he was, he's very old school. As you know, he, he was, when I, when I was there from 13 to 16, And he didn't understand social media. He like, there was, he was, didn't want me in the clubhouse, but I got in, he didn't want me to take pictures on travel, but I got, it was like constantly had to work him. Right. That's Um, unfortunate. But that was just, you know, where he came up and what, and like he, he had a, he had a, he had a bit of a, I don't want to say a problem with the younger players, but he didn't understand them very well. Like, and I'm sure, Players looked at him when he was coming up. Uh, the older coaches like you're a goofball, but it was a generational thing. 
Um, like when we were talking, I would talk to him and I say, yeah, we're going to post this on Instagram. And he would just, his eyes would roll. Like, I, what are you talking about? I might as well have been speaking Mandarin to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, but the players themselves, especially the younger ones, they didn't, they were, they were they fantastic. Were, they, they related. Yes. And then I built a system where, uh, any photos we took of the players, I would drop into their independent, uh, it was like, it was called box and right. it would go to them and then they would get a notification when new photos were sent to them. So they would have all these photos available to them nice. and at, by the end of the game. So they're posting it on social media and it's spreading. And so they were happy and, as you know, if you got happy players, then they don't, they'll let you photograph anything. And it comes down to trust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got to the point where, and you know, I, I would go into the clubhouse and shoot a little of this and shoot a little of that, but I got to a friendship level where they were wanting to take me on things. And I go, guys, I, I, I can't let you take me there. That That's, that's too expensive. We'll pay for it. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. We're, we're not, I'm not letting you spend a thousand dollars on me to go to a boxing match. Oh, come on. It's like, no, 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 no. That, that crosses a line. I feel uncomfortable, but there was a time they wanted to go to Manny Pacquiao and, uh, Oh, who's the other uh, Shane Mosley. No, not Shane Mosley. Somebody else, some big fight. And they wanted to fly out to Vegas. We had a night in San Francisco. We played a day game fight was in Vegas. And then we had a night game the next night. So they felt that enough recovery time. And they were going to fly out and fly back. And they wanted to drag me along. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to Vegas with baseball players. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't want to come back with a tattoo on my face and look like Mike Tyson. <laughs> Tell me about this because I, this I did not know. And so I've listened to them. When did you start your podcast? The ultimate <laughs> game of faces. Like when did that start? Um, I just, it's just a couple of years ago and I just got the, uh, you know, the interest in doing it. And then I uh, got involved with the book process and I haven't done it in a while. It's uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, I mean, you've had some really, uh, the, the one with Jerry and Fred. Oh, I love those. But the, the marketer for San Diego, Andy, uh, Andy Strasberg is priceless. He, he, yeah, he's you. Have you ever met him or known of him? I know of him. Yes. Yeah. An amazing story of yeah. his love for Roger Maris, and uh, yeah, he's he's yeah. still going strong. Creating the uh, chicken, the whole thing. It was just uh, gold. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and have you ever seen the photo? The the I probably I think I had that bookmarked as a. Uh, thumbnail for that in the chicken episode. coop with all yeah, the chicken. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thousands of chickens. And <laughs> I always said, I said to, uh, to Ted Giannolis afterwards, I said, Ted, you're the first portrait that I've taken. That I didn't have to worry about expression. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a good guy. So, so walk me through like your process, your creative process, especially like, you know, you got the world famous chicken and you're in a chicken coop with a bunch of loud chickens, but you don't have to well, worry. Andy, Andy was my contact to get to Ted. Um, and so I said to Andy, I said, I'd like to photograph, you know, Ted. And he says, what do you have in mind? And I says, I want to do something different. I says, I don't, 
I don't want him with other people because, you know, I would like to do him in an empty stadium, something different that, you know, that's the whole purpose of the shot. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, he says, okay. And, and then we were thinking of doing Jack Murphy stadium or Qualcomm or whatever the hell it was down there in San Diego. And, uh, we never heard back from them. Um, uh, they didn't cooperate. So went to plan B and we both came up with the idea of, Hey, you know what? This is, this could work. This could be really fun if we put him in with a bunch of chickens. So we contacted Ted and Ted says, I want to take you to your home. I want to take you back to your childhood, back to the hood. He says, Rich, I'm from Ontario, Canada. What, what's, <laughs> about that and I said Ted I'm not talking about going there I said I'm talking about the chicken coop I said I want to put you in amongst your your own people this is where you were born and raised and he's laughing his ass off and we had such a great time that was one of the hottest days of the week or the summer it was <laughs> shot in Santee down in San Diego mm-hmm. and um, it was hot it was unbelievably smelly and <laughs> they were like they were almost like the chickens were like koi. The, the owner of the place said, don't make any quick movements because you'll freak them out. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this guy's eggs production is just going to go suffer. It's going to go <laughs> south after I'm done with these chickens. So I'm in there photographing it. Uh, did it with a flash bounce, not uh, no other equipment, lighting equipment in there. Shot at wide angle. And... Um, the chickens, they would peck at you. They would right, be trying yeah. to shoulders. They would just do everything. And and they it was weird. But it was hard to talk because of their noise. So I finally leaned into Ted and I said, Ted, look, I'm giving you absolutely no direction. I'm only going to get in the way. You're the master at what you do. You do it. I follow your lead. And right. that's what he did. And so it was an easy shoot for me because... Ted did all the work and um, that's what we did. And I had tears rolling down my, my cheeks throughout the entire shoot. It was so much fun. I mean, that was, it was crazy. Did you give a lot of direction when you did portraits or did you kind of let your subjects kind of work through the process? With um, my regular portraits? Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Cause you did uh, one with uh, the umpire was uh, West. You did one with him. I mean, I'm, I'm a quick story with him. He, uh, I photographed him in between the dug, in between double header, right? San Diego, and so I only had 15 minutes to work with him, and more like 10 minutes. And so he came in. I had it all set up. Came in. I photographed him, uh, and I shut my strobes off, and I thanked him. And I went up to him, shook his hand, and I said. Joe, I, I, I want to thank you for, for have, allowing me to do this, and this is very cool. And he says, great. He says, Rich, I'm happy to do it. And he said to me at that time, Matt, he says, you know what? He says, all my years, I've never been photographed with my mask on. I looked at him, and I immediately said to him, until now. I turned around, walked back to my strobes, turned them on, grabbed my camera, and he had the mask on. And it was only because of Joe 
that I got the signature shot out of the session. Wow. And that's how it came about. I w- would not have thought of putting the mask on, and it was the most effective shot wow. with them. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, you don't shoot many umpires over a career. So, some. Oh, having a... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you I did, have. I did have I did have a request of back in the day. I, I wanted to photograph. Um, and they went on strike. There was a strike stoppage of the umpires, and yeah. they brought in the um, replacement umpires. And before that happened, I had it worked out with a umpire and crew that they were going to let me photograph them in the Dodger uh, locker room in the shower area where they had a row of urinals. And I was going to have the four umpires dressed and ready and with the one home umpire holding his mask by his side so you knew it was a home umpire but they would have their backs to me and I would be photographing the four of them using the urinal oh uh, god oh and I was going to entitle it three minutes to game time because as we all know they don't leave the field yeah they don't <laughs> all the time. well as it turned out that when I did you know, had an opportunity to do one of the umpires was a replacement guy and that at that time they wouldn't even talk to him. So I didn't get the four. So oh, it never Jesus. worked out. Did you ever have any horror stories on a portrait shoot or like where the subject uh, is just a pain in the ass and you can't get what you want for the client? Um, no, not that I can remember. Okay. So those I, are good. I, I have, yeah, I, I was, I always spent a lot of time, you know, it, it's reading people, as you know, mm-hmm. some people are really uptight. Some people aren't. Some people you take a while, especially with children. When I'd photograph, I have to involve children. The moment they walked in the studio, if I had any young kids that were involved in a shoot, whether it was a portrait or a commercial shoot, I would get down on the floor and talk with them uh, because I wanted to be at eye level. And that really, in, that really reduced a lot of anxiety on their part and intimidation. And so I just brought it to their level and that made a big difference in it. Now I had a portrait that I did of Fred Clare, the former GM of the Dodgers, and he was the GM in 1988 when they won the World Series. Okay. He was in the studio, and I was photographing him, and he was uncomfortable in front of the camera uh, initially when we were starting. And I finally just said, I took a deep breath. I looked at him, and he looked at me like, what's the problem? He knew that he wasn't hit the comfort level, and I was ready to photograph him, put the camera back up to my eye, and I said to him, Fred, 1988. And the smile broke out in his face. <laughs> and I got my shot. Yeah. That's all it takes. Sometimes you just got to fly by the seat of your pants sometimes and try whatever works. But, yeah. Yeah. that. And sometimes just a little research on the subject will help, too. Knowing, if, you know, if you didn't know that Fred Claire had won in 88, a little research would have helped, you know. You work your subjects through that process. Because, like, now, Fred's not a professional model, so right. he has insecurities like every person. Now, 19, um, 
uh, I hadn't seen Tommy in quite a while. And um, it was Ross Porter had a golf tournament. And we all gathered for the evening program. And it was one of the most difficult guys I had to photograph during my time with the Dodgers with Peter O'Malley. He did not like to be in front of a camera. He would look away. He was very uncomfortable with it. So it was always a challenge for me. Now, what happens is I find myself at Ross Porter's golf tournament, and it's during the cocktail hour reception before the dinner program, and we're off in a separate room away from everybody else. And, and it was Ross, Vin, Scully, Tommy, and Peter O'Malley. And I've got the four of them to photograph. And I hadn't seen Tommy in years. Now, when I was when I was the Dodger photographer, I would think I was 120 pounds on a humid day, and most of it was black hair. Now, what happens is I'm, you know, I'm the opposite. I put on a lot of weight. So I'm there, and I'm getting ready to photograph the four guys, and I'm hoping to get a smile out of them. And Tommy says to the three guys standing next to him as we pose, he says, the last time I saw Rich, he was 110 pounds. And they all cracked up, and I got the shot. So I didn't have to worry about Peter with a smile. It was all as a result of, of Tommy's, uh, you know, crack. Yeah. Uh, so. yeah, he's jabbing at you, and he got your subjects to work and for he, you. He helped, yeah, he helped me out. <laughs> And I also said, Tommy, I said, also, I says, uh, back then, you'll notice I had black hair and look what you did to me. Yeah. 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 This, this half right here is all you, Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) So, but do you have any, do you have any advice for photographers who work with subjects with models? Um, I think sitting down and talking with them, I, I don't, when I photograph a model, I like to minimize direction on my part. Okay. What I do is I try to sit with a model and I make them comfortable if they're in, intimidated by the process. I tell them to relax because the photographs are going to be a result of their actions. I can't stand there and tell them, smile. Don't smile, this, that, or the other. I want them to feel comfortable with me that they move, they turn, they give me an assortment expression with a little bit of encouragement from me and some direction. But I can't dictate that to them. So if they feel comfortable in front of me, um, like say, for instance, Garve. I'll do a portrait of Garve. Garve is savvy enough that I just follow his lead. He'll right. sit there. He knows when the strobe goes off that he's going to strike a different pose. He may take his hand and move it to his chin. Another shot, the strobe goes off. He moves his, his hand a little different, turns his face a little. That Those are, it's, it's, a, it's a two-way deal. And so you try your best with anybody to try to minimize that awkwardness and have them be a, that participant. Yeah, and it does help, too. He's been in front of the camera a lot in his career, so that's very helpful when you have someone like... Uh, but for those that don't, Matt, yeah. as you know, you've just got to get them to feel like, hey, you know what? 
we just do a desperate assortment, and all we're looking for is one good shot. Yeah, that's it. That's all you need. I, can you believe he's going to run for governor? Or no, no, U.S. Senate. He's running for the U.S. Senate. I'm very surprised. Yeah. That, well, we all thought he was going to be a senator back in the day. You know, politics was mm-hmm. agenda. But uh, Interesting. Good for him. What the hell? What else is he going to do? Sit around? Go get in the mud. <laughs> is there any projects or anything you're working on? Uh, I may have another book that I may be considering. Yeah. And that's my uh, work with uh, Beverly Hills Friars Club and all the those years that I spent with many, many uh, old faces of Hollywood. And uh, I'm given thought whether or not it's relevant enough that people would appreciate it or not. How many do you think of those roasts you think you shot? Uh, probably we did about four a year. Oh, man. With eight years. Ooh, that must have been gold. Gold, Rich, to sit in that room <laughs> and listen to that. Oh, it was craziness. God. Uh, we had two major... Uh, two major ones that you know they had their 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 uh, facility in Beverly Hills, but right across the street was the Beverly Hills Hilton, mm-hmm. and that would be two events a year were held at that where they filled the ballroom. One was a black tie affair, and the other one was the casual. Uh, the black tie was for male and female, you know, guests, mm-hmm. and the other one was all male. Um, but it was, it was wild. I mean, the, what they said, what they got away with, they couldn't <laughs> do it anymore these years. Dick Sean was an, uh, an actor. I don't know if you remember him, a comedian, Dick Sean. Um, he sat at table one time with me before the program. And he said to the folks that were sitting at the table having lunch or dinner, he says, I need the most disgusting joke that you know. Uh, and went around the table, and we shared the most disgusting joke we knew. He used mine, uh, <laughs> but he was gathering material at the, at the 11th hour from people. <laughs> so, you know, but it was bizarre. What and, was the joke? Oh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell you. Sorry. It and, must have been a good one. Time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was bad. I'm ashamed of it. <laughs> well... If you're around baseball players long enough, you're going to hear hear a couple. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it got laughs. Yeah. And that shows you how raunchy everybody was. Were there any other projects during your career that when you were shooting that you thought, like, this is a magical experience? You know, there was a simple one that comes to my mind, and that was very simple, and it was um, uh, for Honda. And Honda was involved with uh, a float. They sponsored a float, and it was during a period of time when it was very animated, and it was new to the process of the, you know, the New Year's Day Rose Parade. Okay. And that year, Honda made arrangements, and they hired me to photograph the Grand Marshal. They had the Grand Marshal come over to the float building company in Pasadena and they gave them a tour of the float building facility, but mainly 
they have him photographed uh the the grand marshal on the float well it's a no biggie you know it's an hour shoot but you know here's the thing while they were waiting to get things set up the grand marshal and i walked around on the floor just the two of us and he was asking me about my camera equipment that he used a lot of equipment he liked to photograph and so forth we got gabbing. We talked about my baseball background and all that stuff. The Grand Marshal was the astronaut, John Glenn. <laughs> I'm like, oh, pinch me. Yes. Wow. And so you, you that's the nature of our business, right? You do it all the time. Yeah. You cross some people that you never thought you would meet or yeah. have a chance to shake their hand. Right. That's the cool part of uh, our profession. Yeah, no, there's, there's been goofy things where you're like, I can't believe I'm in the elevator with this person or we're talking, having this conversation, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And and that's the neat thing because it's, it's like an infusion of fresh blood that you, you just say, I never thought I would run across, but it's the nature of our profession. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Get you into spots you never thought you would expect to be. (laughs) What's the best photo you ever took? Um, I told somebody the other way, and I'm not trying to be cute on this. It's the one I didn't take. And that was... Sometimes that's it, right? Yeah. And it was um, my daughter. Uh, I was in the Dodger office, and I had my daughter with me, and she was only like two to three years old. And she owned that front office because she knew everybody would spoil her. They would pick her up. They'd take her around. And so she knew what desks had candy and what Ah. didn't. And the front office at Dodger Stadium at that time was just all along the right field corner, left field corner was executive row. And everybody that had an office had a window out onto the stadium. So it was a long row with the offices off to one side and I was in one office and I misplaced my daughter. I go, Holy crap. I go, where is she? Well, Peter O'Malley was all business. He was not a guy that was going to sit around the water cooler with you and shoot the breeze about certain things. You know, he was business. He had a large plate that he had to handle on a daily basis. So you didn't just chit chat. So I couldn't find my daughter. So I walk out to the hallway to see, and lo and behold, here she is walking down the hallway away from me, hand in hand with Peter O'Malley. And he's got her hand and he's leaning over talking to her and she's jabbering away at him and he's walking her back to the office. And my first instinct was the, hurry, apologize, and take her. And then I said, no. I leaned back up against the door frame and I watched the moment. And I just savored it and then go, here's my kid walking with the owner of the ball club. And a very unlikely picture. And so that's always been in my cranial hard drive all those years. That's beautiful. The other picture that I think that meant a lot to me um was I became very good friends to this day with Fred Clare. And Fred Clare 
has been battling a, a cancer uh, fight for six, seven years. And they invited him back in 2017 to throw out the first ball and honor him for what he's done with the Dodgers all those years. And so what he did not know was after they introduced Fred and his family on the third baseline to the to the crowd, uh, prior to him going out on the mound to throw the ball, they directed everybody's attention to the left field message board where they played a three-minute video that was very well done about his life and his career. And they played that. And I'm standing next to him photographing him. And you see his wife and family behind him full of pride and smiles looking at the board. But here is a man that's struggling to live and he's seeing his life played out on the board and the tears start to flow. And I photographed it. Afterwards, I went back upstairs into the suite that they provided for everybody. And I said it and I said to Fred, I says, Fred, take a look at this. And he looked at it and he says, what are you asking, Richie? I says, um, he says, are you asking if, it, if I have any problem with you sharing it? And I says, yeah. He says, Rich, he says, photographs don't lie. I have no shame. Those are real life emotions, he says, and please use it as you wish. And to me, that was the more being a friend, knowing what his struggles and seeing and knowing what was going through his mind and heart, watching his life be played out on that, on that, on that board you can't blame him for being emotional and that's what happened. And, uh, I consider that one of my most personal favorite shots that I took at Dodger stadium. Wow. So. Yeah. And he's a great guy too. He's a wonderful Fred. person. You can't go wrong. spending time with Fred Claire. One, one of the, the, the my most exciting and, and you as a shooter can appreciate this was 1981 was the year that they beat Montreal Expos to go into the World Series against the Yankees. Yeah, yeah, that old crap yeah. hole of a stadium in Montreal. Right, and as it turned out, you can appreciate the story. A lot of people don't understand, but we're in the world of 36 exposure rolls. I had two cameras. I had a 135, and I had the 400. I was on the inside third base well next to the Dodger dugout. Okay. Come the ninth inning, there's no score. And now the, your ninth inning basically becomes your extra inning at that point. So the Dodgers come up to bat. At that point, anything that happens is crucial. It's, it's the shot. Right. So when... Expos started the inning pitching. It was Steve Rogers. When he started pitching, I was photographing. I concentrated on home plate. And I didn't have a remote set up or anything like that. I was just using the second camera with the 135. So every pitch that he threw to every batter, I hit the motor drive on the, the the delivery of the pitch, you know, the swing or with 
right. whatever. So each roll, each shot that I took, immediately after he say he swung and fouled it off, whatever it was, I would open the camera back, rip that roll of film out, and drop it to my knees or my my feet, and put a fresh roll in, because <laughs> every frame counted that yeah. we need. And so by the time that he got up third in the inning, uh, in that inning, I had a flood of pulled out film in the floor of the photo well <laughs> because who gave a shit about the 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 um the, the cost of film at that point. Right, yeah, no. Wrong. And I remember the sequence and it was such a high that when he finally hit the home run, I got the swing, I stayed with him, my eye on the viewfinder until he started going to first base. At that point I dropped the the, the the 135 and I went to the long lens and I had the four, uh, 400 on him. Still, at this point, you don't have time to look for where the ball is. That ball could have been a fly ball to right field. I didn't know. All I could do was keep that, keep that body running to first base, rounding first in the viewfinder, waiting for a reaction or hearing the crowd as to what it was. Everybody else, because I'm the team photographer, I could give a crap if Andre Dawson made a great catch. Right. That didn't do me any good. So I stayed with my guy. Everybody else, all the other shooters, they're going to the right field wall to see if there was going to be a spectacular catch. That would have been the shot of the day. Not for me. I could care less. Mm -hmm. So I stayed on the 400 of Rick going to second, and at that point, he took a leap in the air. And he threw his arm up in the air, and I captured it. I wouldn't have had time to react to that unless I had the camera on him and tracked him all the way around. Right. And the moment he went in the air and I heard the crowd, I knew we were going to New York in a World Series. And then all... Then it came back to home plate, the reaction, the players were there to meet them at home plate. I captured that on what was left of the 135 cam uh, camera, and that was it. So the management of two rolls of film, two cameras, and tracking him, it was such a high that you have, I'm sure, experienced a sequence where you go, I can now breathe. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, that was fun, yeah. you know. Bring it on. Let me do that 10 times a game if you could. I mean, it, it's so hard to imagine how much film we would go through and that stuff meant nothing except for this one role because that had what we needed on it. Right. But, mm -hmm. but, but that's how it was. That's how yep. it worked. Yep, absolutely. Wow. You know what? Something happened and you're on exposure 28. Yes. Give me a break. And just as he's about to leap into the air, it goes tink. Yeah. <laughs> and you're done. And that's when, when the curse words fly. Right. Auto rewind kicks oh. in and oh God, you just feel like the smallest person in the world and nothing you can do about it. <laughs> wow. Uh, did you grow up out here? Where, yes. Where did I grew up in, in Orange County and I've been a Dodger fan my whole life. So that's I've grown up going to Dodger Stadium forever. 
I got a cute, quick story of my daughter that you might enjoy. As you know, through the years, Dodger Stadium, they, you know, their two main sponsors was Farmer John and Union 76 Oil. Yep. yep. And Vicky was the spokesperson for both. But when it came to the commercials with 76, they would often film them at the commercial, uh, at the gas station that's out in the parking lot there. Yep. yep. And typically Vinny would be standing next to the pump, to, you know, doing the sales pitch. Well, my daughter is like four or five years old and she watched baseball all of her time. You know, you know, that she was hoping to see daddy in the background, you know, out of focus, but that right. would be it. She would watch um, Dodger baseball every chance she had. So one day I had her in, the, in at the ballpark and she gets an autograph uh, ball from Vinny and he writes on it to my pretty Laura, you know, Vin Scully. So I told Laura, I said, Don't, no more autographs on this. Let's set this aside and this is special. So two days later, I get a phone call and my wife's telling me that uh, Laura had taken on her kindergarten class for show and tell. She took the baseball and the kindergarten teacher called my wife from school to tell her that they had show and tell and that Laura shared a baseball. And my reaction was, I'm thinking, oh, oh some window is broken or some classmate of my kids got a knot on their forehead. The teacher <laughs> explained to my wife that when it was my daughter's turn to get up and, and speak, she got up in the circle of her classmates, held the ball up and said, this is a baseball signed by Mr. Scully and sat down. And the teacher said, I said, Laura, would you please stand and explain to your classmates who Mr. Scully is? Laura gets up and she says to her classmates with an air of indifference as if they should know. She says, Mr. Scully is the gas station man. He puts gas in our cars. <laughs> and so I thought, I go, I, I didn't stop laughing. So that afternoon, uh, I'm at the park and I go in to have dinner and Vinny comes in. And we're sitting at the table, and I shared with Vin a story. And nobody laughed harder than the redhead gentleman himself. Oh, yeah. And he loved it. And if you fast forward, next spring in Vero Beach, Vinny says, Rich, I got a story to tell you. I got to tell you something. And I says, what's happening? And he says, during the off season, I spoke to a couple corporate clubs, uh, gatherings. He says, and at the end of my speech, he says, I told them that if this old redhead ever gets so full of himself, allows an ego to get too big. He says, there's a little girl by the name of Laura who thinks I pump gas to make a living. <laughs> told the story. And I'm standing there. And Vero looking at him as he's telling me this, and my jaws dropped. I had goosebumps. I was like, this is unreal. How cool is that? It's, he was such a, an unbelievable person to be uh, around. It was unbelievable. It was just phenomenal. When, we go, when I go to Dodger games, you know, they, would, they would eat in the 
private room in the back. But he would say hello. He was always kind and he was nice. But in 13, we got the homestead, we got the Freeway League series, the exhibition series, and he comes on the trip and he walks into the Angels common eating area and there was no special area for anybody to eat. You had to eat, you know, with everybody. And he, we're sitting there as a couple of photographers and he looks at us and he's got his tray and he says, is this seat taken? <laughs> I look up and I would have knocked everybody's tray off the table to have him sit with us. Absolutely. <laughs> so he sits down and Rich, he starts talking. I didn't eat one one bit of my food. I watched how he grabbed the salt, how he grabbed the pepper, how he grabbed the four. Like all of a sudden, I'm, I'm sitting there realizing we're having dinner with Santa Claus. Like it's not going to get any better than this. Yeah. Th- this place could burn to the ground in an hour. And it doesn't matter. I'll go out happy because we got to have dinner with him. And he's telling stories and he's asking us, well, who are you with? And oh, and you and this. Oh, I remember coming here. And all of a sudden we're getting a history lesson on Angel Stadium. And I'm like, this is, this is, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I now, had. now, granted, this is a bunch of media members and not one of us was bright enough to think, hit record on your phone, <laughs> you morons, because no one's going to believe this. But no, we just all just sat there, took it all in at Santa's lap and watched him eat bad media food. About five years ago, four or five years ago, we had a luncheon. It was an auction item for Fred Clare. He had a celebrity golf tournament to raise money for City of Hope. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the auction items was to have lunch with Ben Scully and a family bid whatever they bid to have lunch uh, with Vinny. And so Vinny hosted the lunch for the family at the Jonathan Club downtown. And I went down to take some pictures and uh, was was down there and had lunch. When that afternoon was over, I was back in the studio and the phone rings. So help me, Matt. I picked the phone up, I take it, and I said, hello, it's Vin. And he says, Rich, this is Vin. I'm just calling. Do uh, you got a moment? And I says, yeah. And he says, I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated seeing you. And we need to do this more often to get together and share some our time and some stories. He says, I loved it. It was a great afternoon, and, and I just wanted to let you know uh, that we should we should try to do this more often and it's great seeing you. I'm like dumbfounded on the phone. I said, Vin, I says, wait a minute. Do you know what's wrong with this phone call? And he goes, what's that? I says, what's wrong is you dialing me. It should be the other way around with me thanking you <laughs> as for your time. And he goes, Oh no, no, no. Don't even think of that. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. I that a man who should be walking around with somebody carrying his ego, it should have been so big. <laughs> he he had none. He was so damn sweet. Like it was unbelievable. Yeah. We had we had a, one of my favorite photos that got a lot of attention. Mike Sosha, Ron Renicky, and and Mickey Hatcher are are three close buddies Mm -hmm. 
uh, they came up together. They're tighter than I use the expression tighter than bark to a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was at one of Ross's tournaments and this is about five years ago, maybe whatever it was. And as it turns out, three or four years ago. And so I see Soch and, and Hatcher and Renneke are there. And I said to him, I, I brought a portrait background in and a few lights. I said, I'd love to get a shot of just the three of you guys together for no other reason than three buddies. And I'd have them clowning around and doing so forth. And sure. I, I, this would make a great fun shot uh, just with it, keeping it within the four of us. And they said, sure, we'd love to do it. So I gather them during the, the, the cocktail hour before dinner, and I get them to come down to the room, and they do, and I've got them. Everything's positioned for the three of them. And Matt, at that point, just as I'm getting ready to shoot, who walks into the room but Fred Flair and Vince Scully? There's no way I'm going to tell these two gentlemen to stay on the sidelines while I photograph these three buddies. You know what I mean? So I quickly grab a stool, put it in the middle front, and have Vinny sit on that, and I position the other four around him, which meant I needed to move my lights a little bit. So I tell them, I said, look, guys, hold on a second while I move these lights and da-da-da knows them. At that point, it's a, it's, it's a rite of passage for Soch and the rest of the guys to get on my case. Immediately, they're like, come on, Rich, we'd like to eat. How long is this going to take? Blah, blah, blah. Just busting me, including Fred and Vin. They all joined in to give me a hard time. And I got a position, and I allow them to continue to do this. It's fine. I'm ready. I've got my lights adjusted. And I said to them, I said, you know what, guys? I says, all the years, my toughest uh, assignment that I had to do was photographing that team picture. To get all of you guys to behave for a few minutes, I says, was beyond all I can do to do it. I said, he's, I says, and if I thought you guys were a pain then, I want you to know that all four, five or four of you right now are a bigger pain in the ass than even then. I never thought in the world I would be talking like that to Vin or anybody else. And when I did that, they all cracked up. And I <laughs> I got the shot. I got the expression. I knew that I would deliver something to them that they were not expecting. What they were giving, they got back, and they weren't expecting it from me, and it made for the shot. I'll email you the shot, and you'll get a kick out of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal. That's the advantage, or I guess how lucky we are that we we have the career that we've had, and we get to be in those kind of moments because they're super special beyond right. anything you can ever imagine. And they come and they go. They're fleeting. Uh, we do a lot of grunt work. We did a lot of this, that, or the other. But there's times where... The best times are somebody sits down next to you and we shoot the, the breeze and, and talk and, uh, and, and they enjoy your friendship and uh, you go, hey, you know what? There's a nice return on the time that we've put to this. Yeah. That's all you want. That's all you really want. Rich, I cannot thank you enough for the time today and, and to coming on and talking and 
talking about your process and stories and your career path and, you know, stories people could never hear otherwise and the advice you're giving. It's, it's absolutely been a pleasure. Matt, it's obviously the same on my end. And it's, it's, I think it's just downright cool that we've left our footprints in Santa Barbara um, and uh, throughout this entire time and our own journeys that we were able to connect. And uh, uh, that's just downright cool. Yeah, we, we've got to get together somewhere, have a big meal and uh, do more, more. A lot of lies. A lot of lies, a lot of stories, a lot of photos that were... Uh, you know, we're in sharp and we're in focus and uh, <laughs> yeah. and that we're never made. Oh, wait a minute. I got to run, Matt, because I, I see Taylor Swift is on my other uh, phone. Again? Me. She won't leave you alone, huh? So persistent. You know? <laughs> in the <star. laughs> Well, tell her, tell her not to act up, sit down and shut up, and you'll take some pretty pictures of her. <laughs> you take care, Matt. All right, good. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, buddy. All right. Stay well. All right. See you next Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rich Key. If you enjoyed this episode, please click and hit the like button. Become a subscriber to the podcast. And remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. You can find all of our past shows on the website. You can find all the past shows on our website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.